Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to Latin America's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can find me on Twitter at XBorderTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're in our D.C. studio where I'm excited to be joined by Lisette Toutfest. Lisette is an international tax partner in our Mexico City office and leads our international tax services practice in Mexico. Lisette, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, Doug. Well, I'm very excited to have my first representative from Latin America on the podcast, and I thought we could just start with a general overview of the Mexico tax system. As you are well aware, the U.S. has moved from what we had historically called a worldwide system of tax, which really complicated foreign tax credit system. A lot of companies kept cash, cash offshore, deferred income from being subject to tax in the U.S. until it was ultimately brought back. So I, when I taught this, I would call it a modified worldwide system of tax. We now have what is referred to as a territorial system of tax, yet really the only income that is not subject to immediate U.S. tax is a 10% return on depreciable tangible assets with some other exceptions. But how does the Mexico tax system work? I know you guys have an FTC regime, but maybe just give us give the listeners a little bit overview of how the Mexico system works before we dive into some specific issues. Okay, great. Yeah. So Mexico, I would say that it, the system is very much like the U.S. system prior to the recent tax reform. It's a worldwide system. We have a foreign tax credit system. We actually have our equivalent of a subpart F system, which is our refipre rules. Um, we are a country that is primarily, you know, mostly inbound investment. So that obviously, you know, affects how, how you perceive the, the tax system, right? I mean, we do have our refipre rules, but we're always focused on the inbound investment, um, mostly. So, um, probably it is similar with very kind of subtle, but important differences to the U.S. pre-reform system. And so corporate tax rates and... Yeah, so our, yeah, our corporate tax rate is 30%. It has um, gone up and down a lot in, you know, over, I don't know, over the last 10 years, but it's since 2014, about it's been at 30%. Um, we are, in general, a high withholding tax jurisdiction, which Latin America, you know, overall is like that. I would say that's a characteristic of the region. We have an extensive treaty network which for investment in Mexico is, is very important because of the high withholding taxes under local law. Um, I mean, we've got other, you know, things that distinguish us from the U.S. and that, that kind of, you know, confound U.S. investors a lot when they first come in, which is, for example, our uh, FX accounting for tax purposes. Um, that's something that you don't deal with here in the U.S. at all in a similar fashion. Um, our inflationary adjustments as well. Uh, the complexity, the kind of practical day-to-day -day administrative burden, I would say, of, of, you know, running a business in Mexico. So similar, but different. So let's talk a little bit about the, that FX point and the inflationary adjustment, because I know as I was, you know, working with clients that were investing into Mexico, and frankly, when you and I were very early in our careers, mm -hmm. it's something that we spent a, a lot of time on. Can you briefly kind of explain that issue and you know, given the volatility that has been, has, we've historically seen historically. with the Mexican peso, it can really change the after-tax results depending on how that investment is structured. 
Yeah. So, I mean, as you know, I've been I've been working in Mexico almost 20 years now, and I it's unbelievable because this continues to be a topic that you just spend so much time on with companies investing in Mexico. And and I mean, for for a Mexican, let's let's talk about finance for a minute, right? So, if you're going to finance into Mexico, um, you've got more components and more variables than the than the U.S. So, obviously, you have your interest rate. Um, but then you have your inflationary adjustment, which is a legal entity calculation, right? It's not a transactional calculation. And it's basically your net receivables or payables, and I'm oversimplifying here, but your net receivables or payables um, multiplied by the you know, inflationary adjustment or factor for the year. So that could be somewhere between, let's say, 35 and 6% over the last few years. So if you have a, a payable, that is going to be income so it's going to reduce your your interest deduction and then if you have a non-peso denominated uh, loan or payable you also have to take into account a mark-to-market adjustment on an annual basis which is again it's on unrecognized FX gain and it's it's January 1 to January 1 and we don't have carrybacks so what's going to happen is you know you have a loan let's say a dollar loan into Mexico um, and you're looking at what your deduction might be, you're looking at the base for your withholding tax, but it's much more complicated than that. You know, your inflationary adjustment is going to reduce your deduction, but it doesn't reduce the, the withholding tax base. And then the FX is this variable that you can't control. So, and you can't forecast, right? I mean, you can right. forecast it, but if you could, we would all be doing that for a living, right? So, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I think, is if you're going to do a non-peso denominated loan into Mexico, what businesses need to understand is they can't really control um, the, the ETR. They, they, they won't be able to do that. They could have, you know, if there's a devaluation, a strong devaluation or appreciation during the year, especially towards the end of the year, they might end up with income that they weren't thinking about for statutory purposes they didn't have in their provision or, or a big loss, right, that they can't carry back. Right, and it's not just from an effective tax rate perspective, just from an a, from an actual cash tax Absolutely, perspective as yes. well. And so I think where you know investors coming into Mexico can get hung up is that the very common to invest in dollars, you know, into into Mexico. And then if you're looking at doing a deal, structuring an acquisition, and thinking about that after tax return, it's not just as simple as what is the interest expense to reduce that Mexican tax base. You have to factor in this inflationary adjustment and the FX associated. Mm -hmm. with that investment and it can really materially change your after-tax return on that investment beyond than just beyond just the interest rate absolutely and we don't have consolidation anymore from a tax perspective so it's also limited to the entity that's leveraged right so there's there's really I mean the key is like so many things I know especially here in the US tax world now is to model it out Right. Like what what does it look like if you do a USD rate, do some sensitivity analysis around um, appreciation, devaluation of the currency? And what does it look like with a with a Mexican rate? Again, the inflation has been kind of more predictable. But I think if you model this out and then always you have to look at the counterparty as well. Right. What if you do do it in Mexican pesos? What happens with shifting that FX risk to another jurisdiction? Um, and so it, it all of a sudden becomes something that needs to be managed from a system-wide perspective. Yeah, your point being that, so, if, okay, to take this off the table, you lend in pesos as opposed to lending in dollars. Well, 
whoever the lender is, assuming it's a non-Mexican entity, then has the FX risk. And then you need to think through the tax and accounting consequences and the lender's jurisdiction to understand what those ramifications are. Right, right. And that's something that we have to emphasize because it is somewhat counterintuitive, right? I mean, people assume from a consolidated basis this will wash Right. And we have to say, no, 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 we're, we're talking statutory, statutory. There's not going to be a wash because in Mexico you have the effects and on the other end you might not. So, yes, this is something that, you know, there's no end in sight for these. I mean, we would think that, you know, the inflation, for example, it used to be at some point that it was, you know, 20 percent. And so the inflation adjustment made more sense. But, you know, we haven't seen proposals to take that off the table. And the same with the mark to market on the effects adjustment. Right. So we talked about a 30 percent rate in Mexico, no state or provincial taxes of any sort. Right. No. I mean, the only local taxes really. And this also tends to catch people a little bit is the transfer tax on um, on real estate. So that is a local tax. And it it's. You know, there's there, there's no, there's not much. So there may be tax free transactions like mergers and spinoffs and things like that. But to the extent you're moving assets, you're moving real estate, that's going to get taxed. But that's pretty much it. I mean, the okay. property tax is very, very small. But yeah, no state income tax. And then obviously one of the big differences, at least from the U.S. system with Mexico, is the value added tax. And I know this is a little outside your Oh, area. no, I love it. I love it, actually. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about the, the VAT system. That's actually one topic that we've not gotten to on cross-border tax. Oh, my yet, gosh. But. Look at the smile on my face. Okay, I like VAT. I find it interesting. So, yes, we, the U.S. does not have this. And, and um, I mean, you know, what's interesting about VAT, and this is not just Mexico, but in general in Latin America, is people assume that if they understand the value-added tax in Europe, the way it works in Europe, that they understand how it works in Latin America. And it's, again, I keep going back to the theme of similar but but not the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um in Mexico, so the VAT rate is 16%. Uh, there is now, as of January, and we can talk about this a little bit later, a, you know, a reduced rate along the border, but it's 16%. We have certain transactions that are exempt, and then we have other transactions that are zero rated, in which you have to be careful with in Mexico, and I think in general Latin America, but we're talking about Mexico specifically, is that the VAT not become a PL item, right? I mean, the VAT is is a turnover tax that should be passed along right to the ultimate consumer right that's the concept but because of the way it works in mexico because of the you know if something becomes for example non-deductible from an income tax perspective then you lose the ability to credit it okay if you have income that is zero rated so either because you're exporting or because you sell services or um, products that are zero rated for example, a lot of food products, mm-hmm. um, then you have, you're in a refund position. And the reality of the refund position is, is quite difficult, right? I mean, you can be stuck six months. Any documentary issues at all can be a reason to not give you the refund. So I think that there are a lot of companies that, that have a VAT headache um, because of the administration of it, the constant having to go back for a refund, you know, all of the all of the potential issues you can have to actually get that to actually have it work the way it's supposed to work. So the VAT is something that I, I do think companies need to spend a little more time thinking about so that it doesn't become a PL issue because it's not supposed to. Right. It's all theoretically right, right. supposed to, to, to wash out. Right. So you had mentioned that 
you know, it's a worldwide system of tech. Let's talk a little bit about outbound investment from Mexico. So, you know, let's say the, the U.S., for example, because this was something that I was interested in, in picking your brain about, is the U.S. now, we went from a 35% rate, statutory rate now, to a 21% rate. We have the foreign-derived intangible income, which we've talked a little bit about here on cross-border tax talk, so that the rate could get relatively low. Right. How does that work with your FTC system? Are you? A, is it a per-country FTC system, or is it kind of pooled like our old concept? Or how, how does that work with uh, with the U.S. and if Mexico is investing into the U.S.? Right. So the Mexican FTC system is. I would say loosely based on on what the U.S. system was like. It is a per country calculation, right? Yeah. So it's not types of income; it's per country. Um, That's a little different than our our prior system. Yes, it is a little different. And so we have, you know, we have all of these kind of nuances or subtle differences um, on on the surface, and then when you drill down, they can make a huge difference, right? I mean, if you do that calculation per country, that that can be drastically different. Sure. Um, we have limitations as far as how many levels down you can go, right? It's two levels right? to get In the, the credits. US, right to get the credits. We used to be six, but that's yeah, done now. but you know, it, it it reflects also the reality of of the outbound investment for Mexico, right? It's 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 growing and it's maturing, but we're not at the level yet where you have these you know huge huge U.S. multinational companies, like numerous numerous groups, sure. right? But, so, just, but, but just to help me understand, so if a Mexican company invested in a U.S. company, let's say that blended rate is 20 or 18 percent, that income is generally deferred from tax in Mexico until it is distributed to Mexico. And then how does Mexico, how much would Mexico tax that? Okay. So we, you know, if you think about a Mexican multinational um, investing in the U.S., it's kind of, it's like deja vu probably for you in the, in the U.S. because you, you could defer it. Mm -hmm. Right. You can leave it and, and continue to invest um, outside of Mexico unless you fall within what our our subpart F rules are. They're called refipre. Right. Mm -hmm. And our refipre rules, which are the key difference from the subpart F rules is, again, we're not focused on types of income. I mean, a little bit. But we're more focused on the rate. So if the if the rate, the effective rate is less than 75 percent of the Mexican rate, then you would have to immediately accrue that just like you do for sub F. OK, so Mexico, let's say investment, that's something that they're going to look at. And, you know, our biggest partner, the U.S., all of a sudden has a rate. The statutory rate is less than 75 percent of the 30 percent rate. And with FDII, it could be even lower. Right. So, you know, there was a lot of noise around this, I mm -hmm. would say, um, when U.S. tax reform, you know, first uh, was passed. But I think for the most part, it's 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 such a case by case calculation because you look at effective rate, not statutory rate. I see that you know everybody's still kind of waiting to see because they have to wait for the first full year to close, right? And look at what their rate is. You can pull in state income tax, right? Not not sales and use tax, but state income tax into that. Um, but yes, it's definitely. I think multinationals definitely have to have to look at Mexican multinationals have to look at that. Yeah, so let's talk about then U.S. investment into Mexico. So Mexican inbound investment. Mexico used to be a, a low, lower tax jurisdiction. Now it's a high tax jurisdiction right. from, from a U.S. perspective. We already talked about the foreign exchange issues associated with that inbound investment into Mexico. 
What are some of the other important issues? I know treaty and mm -hmm. withholding tax rates, particularly on equity investments, and maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I would say probably two of the most important things for investments into Mexico are, um, especially, you know, like long-term and more complex investments where you have, you know, more than one entity or you have other things in Latin America is the high withholding tax rates, right? That always throws people off. Um, and remind me the dividend and royalty and interest. With right. The rates. most important, the dividend under domestic law is 10 percent. Mm -hmm. And that is as of 2014. So it does it only applies for dividends distributed out of 2014 earnings. Okay. Right. So for a lot of companies, this is just an issue that they deal with. Re they've been dealing with recently because they were paying dividends from prior years. So, you know, interest, I mean, interest and royalties, they can be quite high under the treaties. And let's just talk about the treaty rates because, you know, most that that is the way to really think about this is where do you have substance? You know, where does it make sense? Obviously, from a business perspective, and we have such an extensive treaty network that, um, you know, it's conducive to, to more efficient investment. Right. So you can most treaties have a 10 percent um, withholding on royalty. 10% withholding on interest, 10 or 15, but mm -hmm. more and more 10%. The dividends is where it gets more complicated. So um, with the U.S., there is a 0% rate mm -hmm. on dividends. And we the U.S. Is, has an LOB provision, which most treaties don't. And that's a limitation on benefits provision that, that companies or payors that are looking to meet the treaty must qualify the the recipient must meet the, the limitation on benefits provision to be able to qualify for that treaty. Correct, correct. So, you know, and this is different than the OECD focus, the MLI, multilateral instrument, right, which is more focused on, let's say, substance and connection with the investment. Which we'll get to. Which we will get to, but to stick with the LOB, um, that really looks to the, or the Mexico, U.S. LOB, really looks to the origin, right, the ultimate investor. So to the extent it's a U.S., publicly traded company, which is different than a company publicly traded in the U.S. Right. Right. Important distinction. As an extent, it's a U.S. publicly traded company. Eh, for the most part, you should be fine. But what what people forget is there are a lot, there's a lot of investment that goes through the U.S. that is not a U.S. publicly traded company. So, you know, private equity or there's a substantial, you know, substantial ownership that's inbound for U.S. purposes. Right. And, um, the the LOB has a very narrow provision for the dividends. So you might qualify under the LOB for, let's say, capital gains and other things. But to get the zero percent uh, on dividends, it's I think it's it surprises companies. So anybody, you know, any company that's not a U.S. publicly traded company should absolutely be thinking about the LOB. So we talked about withholding rates. I think the the other, um, let's say, feature of Mexican tax that and again it's a latin american thing not just a mexican thing that u.s investors should should be cognizant of when they're um structuring their investments is that we tax the transfer of shares in a mexican entity right so non-resident capital gains tax yes and that the reason that's important is because you know oftentimes and especially u.s companies are used to a certain flexibility in you know restructuring investments and so something as simple as wanting to do something from, you know, an entity simplification, right, project, something like that, that a company has to do that is not at all tax driven could, if they're not careful, create costs in Mexico and Latin America, just because you're not allowed to move a company from one place to another in your group without paying tax, unless you kind of 
qualify for treaty reorganizations. And those are limited and they have, you know, administrative and formal requirements. So it's possible. But that's something that's something that I, I do think if you think about it before you go in and do your investments and and do it in a way that will give you that flexibility in the future you're going to make your life easier. Yeah, I think you gave a couple of good pieces of advice there. One is before you're paying dividends, you need to look kind of all the way up the chain to understand whether you meet the limitation on benefits provision to try to get to that lower withholding tax. Similarly, if you're a foreign company, whether it's U.S. or some non-Mexican that is has Mexican subsidiaries and you're doing restructuring somewhere in the group, you need to look all the way down to make sure that you don't trigger or have um, non or cause issues with your non-resident capital gains. Absolutely. Well, you know, we get, and I, I'd said legal entity simplification because that is something that people think this is just cleanup, mm -hmm. right? And so we might get, you know, very short notice. We want to merge or do something with these entities. And, and, and there's often surprise that, no, if you do it that way, it's going to cost you, you know, if you do nothing, 25% of the gross, you know, <laughs> the fair market value of what you're moving. So yeah, absolutely make sure you have a flexible structure. So you had mentioned the multilateral instrument. And so the U.S. has obviously not signed up for the multilateral instrument, but Mexico has officially and signed. other, you know, 60-plus countries, right? I mean, the U.S. Yes. So remind our listeners, okay. you know, what, what does this mean that Mexico has signed up for the multilateral instrument? So we now have 60-plus countries that have all signed up for a treaty that have agreed to various provisions. I mean, just trying to keep track of what provisions apply between which of the various jurisdiction is just a spider web of different provisions. But how is this impacting investment into Mexico? And what does this mean for investment into Mexico? Right. So I'm going to put this in context and just rewind for just a sec, because we were talking about the LOB provision in the U.S. treaty. So for companies that are investing directly from the U.S. into Mexico, for that Mexico, you know, anything related to the to the shareholding, so the dividends that they don't need to worry about the MLI, they, they need to focus on the LOB. But as we know, a lot of companies have complex holding structures and they're going through non-U.S. entities. So the MLI is, as you said, it's a multi-jurisdictional treaty um, that's that what it basically does is it, it complements or adds rules to the existing treaties, right? So Mexico, as I've said, has an extensive treaty network. I mean, very proud, like just really, I think, you know, you, you have tons of flexibility. Where is the country that, that, that doesn't have a treaty with Mexico? But many of these, especially the European jurisdictions, have signed on to the MLI. So Mexico has um, signed the MLI and it is waiting for ratification by the Senate. Okay. It's actually already in the Senate Finance Committee. Um, it, was, it was taken to the committee at the end of 2018. So the, the expectation is that it, it, it will be ratified probably this quarter. You know, if not, definitely this year. And once that is ratified, what's going to happen, and, and let's just take an example, is um, the, the principal purpose test, right? So under existing Mexico treaty network, as we've said, very few of them have an LOB, right? The U.S. is one of the few. Mm -hmm. um, and the substance requirements under the current treaty network, I mean, you do you need to have residency and obviously substance, but there, there aren't really kind of granular rules around what that substance looks like. The MLI will, you know, as soon as it's ratified, you've got six to 18 months before these rules come into effect that will really raise the bar on not just the substance, but the type of substance. So it's almost like a nexus between the holding company, you know, the owner of the Mexican shares in Mexico in order for you to qualify for 
the lower withholding rates under the treaty. So it really completely changes your treaty analysis, um, especially with re respect to non-resident capital gains tax. You know, I think a lot of companies think they have like a flexible structure today because of the treaty network, and they just haven't looked at whether that will continue to be true once the MLI is effective. Yeah, and I think that companies or individuals or you know private equity or whatever that have set up special purpose vehicles, which was pretty common as an investment vehicle into Mexico, now particularly need to consider how the MLI impacts that special purpose vehicle, the substance, et cetera, and with the 10% the dividend withholding tax could be a significant cost. And then restructuring as well could potentially implicate the non-resident capital gains tax. Yeah, I think absolutely the principal purpose test is one of the most important questions companies should be asking themselves. So, you know, we've already, you know, we're having this conversation actively. And it's interesting because a lot of times companies, they haven't really thought through the reasons, right? The, the structure was put in place, let's say, long before that particular individual was at the company. So, you know, sometimes we look back and we see, oh, okay, it was, let's say, maybe this holding company was acquired. Right. They acquired the group and it was already like that. Or they actually have a lot of other investments under the holding company. So a lot of companies are better off than they think. They just haven't gone through the, the, the thought process yet or the analysis. So I definitely encourage companies to do that because the, the problem with the principal purpose test and because we have the non-resident capital gains tax is that if you don't do the analysis before this is ratified, once it's ratified, you're stuck with your structure unless you're going to pay, you know, pay tax on the on the change. So what I want to do here in our last few minutes, Lisette, is a bit of a speed round. There are a number no. of interesting <laughs> issues that I would like to just kind of get, you know, a, a, a few, a reaction from you as far as kind of the, the state of the law or, you know, things that our listeners should be aware of. Okay. First is the, this is something that we talked about in our last cross-border tax talks, which was 267 Cap A. This was the U.S.'s foray into action item two of BAPS on interest and royalty payments. Mexico was ahead of the game a oh, couple years. Yes, been there, done that. Yes, absolutely. 2014, I think we um, included rules that basically say interest royalties, you know, not deductible if they're not accrued for tax purposes in, in, the, in, in the hand of the recipient. So we have those rules. So companies need to be mindful when they're making interest and royalty deductions, who that recipient is, and sort of similar rules that we've similar. seen. Similar, and we've talked about this. There's a quirkiness to the rules that, you know, is it, it, it does it apply to the whole group or just, you know, in a, um, a strictly vertical sense, right? Right. The, the way the control rules. So, yes, absolutely. If you are paying, I mean, a lot of these are simple questions. Are you paying interest? Right. Who's, you know, who who's the payee? Let's look where the structure, I mean, it can be a five minute conversation and if there's an issue, then it can be a much longer one, but yes. So the Maquilador regime, the Maquilador regime is a regime to incentivize companies to manufacture in Mexico. It effectively creates a toller arrangement where that investing jurisdiction generally owns the raw materials, the manufacturing equipment, the, the inventory, that's still alive and well? It is alive and kicking. So the Maquila regime, I mean, there's a whole kind of Emex customs and trade side to this. Right. With with the, the duties and all that. But from a from an income tax perspective, um, what what we still have is like a safe harbor provision. Right. So you can have your tolling. There might be a company that has a tolling relationship and they're not a maquila for tax purposes um, or they are. And if they are basically, you know, it's a statutory protection on, you know, on permanent establishment and there are safe harbor rules around what your income can be. So yes, absolutely. And I th you know, it's interesting because there was a lot of conversation um, 
in Mexico with the U.S. tax reform is what's going to happen to the maquilas? Are they right. all going to disappear? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think that, you know, they're along the border for, for very valid reasons that are not just tax reasons. Um, and there is a tax safe harbor, and Mexico has been, I think, you know, consistent with those rules for years now. So, so yes, absolutely, it's a, it's, it's a regime that continues. And there are some limitations for those Mexican entities that act as a maquila as far as how much they can sell within Mexico, too. So, I mean, generally— Right, right. You have to export a, you have to export a high percentage, and, and the, those rules haven't changed. I mean, I think the message around maquila more than what the rules are is— you know, people think of, I, I don't know, sometimes I shouldn't say people think, but, you know, Mexico, the peso may be volatile, but I think that since 2014, we haven't had a significant tax reform. And the the the, the positive, I mean, there, there are things we would like to change or we wish would improve, but the positive take on that is that there has been a real consistency in the rules, right? We're not going crazy with the tax rate. We're not, cha I think the, the, the period in time that I lived through, I mean, we lived through as, as younger professionals where, you know, the rules change from year to year. Mm -hmm. I, you know, for the most part, we're, we've, we've got a pretty stable system and the maquila is is a foundational principle of that. Okay, so a couple recent developments. The first, eliminating of the offsetting federal tax. Yeah. What is that? Right, right, right. So there was a, there was a tax alert and I'm guessing that the title didn't probably grab people because they were wondering, like, what is this? So in Mexico prior to 2019, um, just an important tool in, in kind of managing operating cash flow is that you could offset uh, you know, taxes, balances due or favorable balances from one federal tax against another. And in the context of a country where, as we spoke about, for example, VAT, companies might be oftentimes in a refund position and the refund process itself is 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 quite difficult and uh, you know can stretch on for months and months. The ability to use that that balance to let's say pay your estimated um, income tax or withholding taxes was a great cash management tool. And I would say you know I was in house for I mean this is something that was just part of just being a good manager of your money. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was eliminated in 2019. So that now you are only able to offset, uh, you know, income like taxes of your own and of the same nature. I so see. income taxes against income taxes, and then most likely not income taxes against withholding income taxes. Or, okay. So there's a little there's controversy there, but this this for for Mexican companies and and you know I think groups that have a large Mexican business this will resonate with them. Um, because you know the business is, is sure. really going to care about this year operating cash flow. So that that was a huge change. Cash matters. All right. Last but certainly not least, the border zone. Yeah. Yeah. A so lot of a lot of excitement I initially, know, and I sort know. of maybe didn't make as big a splash <laughs> as I think some of us had maybe hoped. I think as anticlimactic is probably the word. So yes, there is a border zone regime that was passed. Um, I think December thirty first. So. They said they do it before year end, and they did it before year end. Basically, what it does is it creates the possibility to um, have a reduced income tax rate at the border of uh, 20%. So not coincidentally, the U.S. rate is 21%. Right. And if you just walk across the border now, you can, you know, if you qualify for something, get 20%, right? And with the VAT, it was, it's also half the rate. So going from 16 to 
And as our new president noted, that is roughly equal to the average sales and use tax on the other side of the border. So, you know, there was, before this was actually um, made effective and the legislation was published, there was a lot of talk about this as kind of leveling the playing field along the border so that, um, you know, there wouldn't be a leakage of business from one side to the other. What happened is these rules did come out as had been discussed. I mean, there is, you know, 16 to 8% and basically roughly a third of uh, income tax reduction, but there are a lot of requirements. And so really, I think the companies that should think about this and look into it are companies that have existing operations at the border. Um, There are requirements around, you know, how much of your business is at the border. Interestingly, it's a legal entity by legal entity uh, measurement. So... You know, don't look at your whole group, think, do I have, for example, you know, a plant that's at the border, it's in one legal entity. It might qualify. And I mean, and you know, it's significant savings if it does, right? I mean, Absolutely. it affects pricing. It's not just a, it's not just income tax, right? This is operating expense. Um, so I, I don't think, although it's not, it, it only, it's, it's right now, it's a two-year benefit uh, that could be extended. So definitely something if you have operations at the border and there's actually a listing and we, we have, an, uh, you know, the firm put out an alert with the, the listing of the municipalities that qualify. If you have a legal entity that operates in those municipalities, absolutely pick up the phone because, you know, this is this is something that's there for you to to potentially, you know, have access to. Yeah. And one of the things that we've talked about in a couple of our other cross-border tax talks is our guilty regime and many Companies, I think both foreign-based multinationals as well as U.S.-based multinationals invest in Mexico through the U.S. And so a number of those companies have excess credits in the guilty basket. So a regime like the border zone could potentially eliminate some of that potential double taxation. So Lisette, I think we're going to have to leave it at that. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to Lisette Toutfest, PwC's International Tax Services Leader in Mexico, I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader, north of the border in the U.S. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax and LinkedIn at Doug McConey. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. 